I'm Alan Kavan on Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, the good, the bad, the brickyard. It's been 25 years of NASCAR racing at the most famous track in the world, so that deserves its own episode. So special, in fact, we're bringing along a special guest and, of course, our helpful weekly preview. But first... As always, this is episode 33 of Positive Regression. This is the Harry Gant edition. Number 33, David. This one was kind of easy. Harry Gant was in that initial brick, uh, inaugural Brickyard 400. Uh, and it's so appropriate that this is our first September episode ever of Positive Regression. And Harry Gant, of course, Mr. September after he won four races in a row in 1991, all in September. And David, at 51 years old, he did this. That blew my mind. Okay, so prepare to have your mind blown some more. Uh, how old do you think Harry Gant was when he got his first full-time ride at the Cup Series level? It's got to be in his early 30s. Oh, Alan. What? It's 39. No. Oh, he started at his peak. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so all right, so we we've talked about on past episodes about how age 39 statistically is the year when drivers peak. But for Harry Gant, that was when things started. In 1979, he ran 25 races in the old Jack Beebe car. And in those 25 starts, he had nine mechanical DNFs. He didn't join the 33 team, which at the time was owned by uh, Hal Needham of Smokey and the Bandit fame, in 1982. And he won nine races across his first four years with that team. And uh, then, as you would expect, his decline hit. He went winless for three seasons. And then a new crew chief rolled into town, Andy Petrie. Ooh. Walked into the shop like he was Wyatt Earp, whips the program into shape, and he modernized the process of that number 33 team. Uh, they won once in 1989, once in 1990, and as you said, in 91. They won five times, including that four in a row for the month of September, and those wins came at Darlington, Richmond, Dover, and Martinsville. And it turns out, uh, we know this after the fact, that Andy Petrie had tilted the rear wheels of the car to the left, designed to make the car turn um, a lot easier. And it worked very well. And right after NASCAR found out about it, they made that little flick of the rear axle completely illegal. And that was that. Uh, makes me a little bit miffed as a Davey Allison fan because Davey led 100 laps in three of those four races, but I digress. <laughs> but Alan, I want to talk about that paint scheme because I don't know that it was the most iconic of his time, but I might say that it was the most appropriate for the period. I think it perfectly encapsulates NASCAR in the uh, the late 80s, the Skull Bandit. Oh, sure. Team. Simple, plain, green and white, tobacco-filled, and had that awesome bandit, the, the, the bandit logo. I mean, it's legendary. I mean, it's something you remember. It was, it was the outlaw car for the outlaw sports, and I think that's what resonated the most with fans. I don't know that it would, Harry, uh, Harry's career, he only maybe won, yeah. what, 18 races or so, all of them in the 33 car. I mean, that's actually a pretty good that's career. I want to ask you though, does, does the legend, does the, do the memories outweigh the stats of Harry Gant, if you will? Do we talk about him so yeah. much compared to the stats? What you look back on, you're like, well, he didn't do 
that much, but we, we, we talk about him like a man, myth, and legend, which he deserves and the nicknames, mm-hmm. the paint scheme, but does the legend outweigh the stats? Sure. There's a Bo Jackson quality to it, right? Because everybody has a Harry Gant story. I know your buddy Kenny Wallace always loved talking about Harry Gant, but, uh, and, and, and in fairness, the guy was beloved in the, in the NASCAR garage, but, yeah, maybe the maybe the myth and the stories outweigh the results, but he wasn't a bad driver when you just go back to that. And he just had a, a a bizarre career starting when most drivers peak, and then into his fifties, a winner. Um, we're probably never going to see anything like that going forward. Uh, we saw a little bit uh, from it with Dale Jarrett, but will we ever see it again? Not I just a winner. So. He had two seasons in his 50s where he finished top five in points. 1992, David. We all remember Davey Allison, Alan Kowicki, Bill Elliott, and that final battle for the title. Who finished fourth that year? At age 52, it was Harry Gant. I couldn't believe that. That's how old he was when he was finishing fourth in points. It's crazy to me. Yeah, and and in kind of reliving some of that, I, going back through the stats, it made me think, Andy Petrie, are we underrating him as a crew chief a little bit? I know that he uh, he came in uh, in 93 at RCR to kind of uh, write Dale Earnhardt's path, but it seems to me that Andy Petrie, through his crew chiefing career, was a fixer. And a damn good one. If you look at the, if you look at the record and, um, it just took me looking at Harry Gant's numbers to realize that, but that 33 team, even heading into the early nineties, that was a solid program. All good stuff. Great memories of Harry Gant. Episode 33 of Positive Regression dedicated to you, handsome Harry Gant. We'll start the episode. Look, this is the 25th anniversary of the Brickyard 400, and for that, we are bringing in a special guest, an Indiana native, Aaron Bearden of the Motorsports Beat. Aaron's work is, uh, you can check him out on Twitter and all that, but what I want to point you to is his so he has the most helpful newsletter that goes out in the morning. It is motorsports-filled. It'll catch you up on anything and teach you things you didn't know. Aaron, thank you for joining Positive Regression. Yes, thank you so much, Alan. And that that newsletter, just for anybody who wants to know, is called The Morning Warm-Up. It was based on an IndyCar practice. I was watching in the morning when I came up with the idea, but I promise it's mostly catered toward NASCAR fans. <laughs> yeah, a lot of great info in there. And like we said, you're an Indiana native. We're talking Brickyard. And Harry Gant, he made that first start. He made, the, he made a, one start in that inaugural Brickyard 400. So, uh, I mean, he's still connected to what we're talking about today. What do you remember about him? You're a young guy, though, so I, I'm, I'm scared to know what you know about him. Well, I was all of uh, one year old when he retired in 1994. <laughs> I did look at his stats, and I've obviously – I've heard the legends. You mentioned a Bo Jackson story. Bo Jackson's the same way to me. It's like a distant memory and a bad one because I'm an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. But when it comes to Harry Gant, the thing that stuck out to me as a Hoosier is that he only got to make that one start at the Brickyard. It came in his last year. That means it was the only cup track he only made one start at, to my knowledge. And wouldn't you know it, he led one lap. He managed to lead a lap at the Brickyard and get his name in the record books before transmission issues took him out. That's awesome. I love everything about that first race. And maybe we'll talk about that a little more because this episode is totally focused on the Brickyard. And of course, Jeff Gordon was the first to win it, then Dale Earnhardt. And when the question I'll pose to you two, David and Aaron, is that there have been 15 drivers have won the Brickyard 400. Ten of them have either been or gone on to be cup champions. Why is this a track or a race 
where the cream seems to rise to the top. Because when we think winners of the Brickyard, we are thinking some of the best to have ever done it. And why do those, am I looking too much into it? Why, why do you think that correlates? I don't think you're looking too much into it. I think it's, it's interesting for me in that there may be two answers to this question. One pre playoff format and one during the playoff format. But if we think back to those formative iterations, uh, before there was ever a chase or playoff conceived, the Brickyard 400 paid very well. In 1994, when Jeff Gordon, uh, won it, he earned over $600,000 for the win and for a single race. I mean, it wasn't the All-Star race and it wasn't the Daytona 500. That was a big deal. And in the 2000 edition, Bobby Labonte won the race, pocketed $800,000. So there was that, and there was this sense of prestige. It's Indianapolis Motor Speedway, after all. And the NASCAR guys pay very close attention to what happens in Indianapolis. Who wouldn't want to win there? Uh, and when you combine those two, it stands to reason the best drivers and teams are going to rise to the occasion. Uh, and as for nowadays... With it not being a part of the playoffs, uh, and for that matter, the big two-mile non-drafting tracks not having any representation in the playoffs, we talked about that on a previous episode, no team is really prioritizing this track type over the mile-and-a-half or one-mile tracks. They're taking it seriously. Uh, I'm not not trying to, to twist this into something it isn't. But there is only so much that one team can do only so much that they can get motivated to go the extra distance for this race. So the reliance on having just good cars in general, good horsepower stands out because at least from where we sit, we aren't aware of any team circling Indianapolis at the start of the year because it's another race among a style of track that doesn't do much to reward those seriously contending for the championship. And let's face it, time and money are better used for R&D around the tracks that actually do reward those teams. Aaron, David, and I, you know, we're old, so we watched the Earnhardts, the, the Jeff Gordons, uh, the Dale Jarrett's of the world win this race early on. Uh, and we've continued to see it. You've continued to watch, let's say, Kyle Busch, Keselowski. What do you think it is about this track that, that, that draws itself, that, that, that draws champions to being the one kissing the bricks? Well, I think a lot of what David hinted on is going to be the majority of your answer. But when you really look at the way this race tends to play out, I think that's sort of been a factor of it too over the years. Uh, this isn't a race traditionally, at least in going way back, that's lended itself to a, a ton of different strategy changes. You've had a lot of your dominant teams that have been able to run up front. There were a couple of years early on where you'd only see one caution, two cautions, you know, three cautions. And when things like that happen and you don't get a lot of variables to add to it, I think that opens up the door for your power teams to really excel. Like you look at the years that Bobby Labonte won and the Pontiacs were so strong. There were only two cautions. There weren't a lot of things that shook it up for him. And now when you move forward to the modern day, I think a lot of what David said is true again. There's a lot, a lot more going on. Uh, I think the stages in particular have added to it. You know, two of the highest caution rates we've seen have been in the last two years. That's opened the door for someone like a Casey Kane to win it. Um, you know, it's just, it's a strange thing to watch over the years. Because I remember when I was when I was a little kid, it was always like my pride and point in watching it. Because I've been going to this, I've been going to qualifying day since 1996. 
And I've been going to race day since I was six years old in 1999. And I remember the first three years in a row when I got to go see it, the driver I saw cross the line and kiss the bricks at the end of the day was a driver that went on to win the championship. And I just remember there being such a prestige to it and such a, it was almost like a majestic thing to be the winner of that race because it felt like it, not only was it a marquee win, but it also foreshadowed so much more. And that's not necessarily the case anymore, as, as we can see. I mean, winning the championship can still come after this. I look at Kyle Busch in 2015, but with this race not being in the playoffs, with the championship being so much different and how it's decided from those old days, I think nowadays it really just comes down to kind of what David hinted at, the lack of teams really emphasizing it as much outside of maybe Roger Penske because Indianapolis still means a little bit to the, to the captain. But when it comes to the standard teams, they're not emphasizing it as much. And I think in those cases, traditionally, it's going to make the teams that are powerful anyway stand out. Yeah, and then you, you, that's a perfect transition into uh, you know what we wanted to talk about in terms of the prestige. Twenty-five years. I, I mean, the '94, the inaugural Brickyard 400. I mean, I've I've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast before in many different ways, but it to me is one of those significant races and moments in my life, and I just have so much reverence for that track. But twenty-five years into it. Uh, let's talk about that factor, that prestige. Is it still there? Is this still a major on the NASCAR calendar? We talk about majors in golf all the time. We do it in NASCAR a lot. I, I of course, say yes. Maybe I'm a sucker. I don't know. But it's still the Brickyard. It's still the pageantry of kissing the bricks. It's Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It, it, it is absolutely, it seems from a driver's perspective, one of those that everybody wants to check off. And so few have, right? And I think that makes it even more special. So to me, it's still a major. David, I'll throw it to you first. In terms of 25 years in, I know things have evolved, but where do you think the Brickyard stands? I would say that in the moment, it can become a major. And if I'm wrong, may they correct me, but it seems for drivers, it doesn't become important. It does not carry the kind of significance that you would expect until they've won the race and they are sitting in victory lane, soaking all of it in. I think the, the Casey Kane victory lane stands out to me because you could see that he completely comprehended the weight of the moment. Um, for everyone else, the, the non-winners, it's a shrug your shoulders and on to Vegas and Richmond where let's be real, that's probably where their focus is anyway. Um, it can be argued that we are coming off of two races at Bristol and Darlington, which certainly have a steeper history within NASCAR and offered way more pageantry than we've seen lately at Indianapolis. Darlington now with the throwback weekend concept, it was always a major Southern 500 weekend, but now it feels like a seminal moment every season. I'm still personally reflecting on how hard that track is and knowing that how incredible it is to have had a 21-year-old win the pole and a 22-year-old win the race on the same weekend. And if that happens this weekend at Indianapolis, I don't know that it registers for many people because as weird as it sounds, Indianapolis does not have NASCAR lore. Uh, I watch the Indianapolis 500 every year. I think it is to most casual observers the one day a year where they are IndyCar fans, and that event offers the pageantry along with it. it. To me, it's very similar in that regard to something like the Kentucky Derby, and that is difficult to capture for another race at the same facility, 
the Brickyard 400 will never carry the gravitas of the Indianapolis 500. I'm just curious, you know, what, what does this mean for the race from a NASCAR perspective? I mean, Aaron, do you, do you see a difference over the years? Oh yeah, I see a massive difference over the years. And it really starts with my drive to the track. When I was a little kid, I used to ride in the back seat with my parents and we would go at five in the morning and park at a church a mile from the racetrack. My parents would get out and read the paper while I anxiously waited. And then we would walk into the track because it was so much quicker to walk out of there and beat all the crowd that was stuck in the parking lots than it was to try to get in parking and have to get stuck going through all the hassle. I mean, that race used to be massive. It used to be hundreds of thousands of people, almost to the prestige of the Indy 500. Now, I didn't go to the Indy 500 for a long time, which sounds like a cardinal sin as a Hoosier, but... So I don't know. I guess I can't really compare at the time how the two races stacked up. But the Brickyard 400, when I was going to it all the way up until as recently as about 10 years ago, it felt like a massive event. And it felt like a true spectacle. Not Maybe not to the extent of the greatest spectacle, but a true spectacle nonetheless. And over the years, I've just noticed it slowly and steadily kind of fade away to the point where it feels a little more just like a standard race. And this schedule change we've had for these last two years has really emphasized that to me because two years ago, I went to the Southern 500 and I felt that, that feel of the Southern 500. I mean, and you guys have been to it, you know, it has such a gravity to it. It's very, the, the prestige of that event is palpable. And I think that race on Labor Day would be anyways, but the throwback event has just put totally over the top. And the Bristol night race has always been an event that's just carried so much prestige on its own, regardless of any circumstances around it. Both those races just feel so special. And then you get to Indianapolis now, and I'm trying to hype myself up for it and to feel like it's that same crazy special event. But I know I'm going to roll in there and I can show up. I won't because I like to get there early, but I could show up at 11 o'clock go straight through, not have any real traffic issues, get to the media lot and walk straight in the track. And the moment I, d- I did that last year, albeit for, it was a rain delay, so it added to it. But the moment I did that last year and realized how easy it was to get into the track, I kind of had that first feeling that like, you know, this, this event is still important to probably the drivers that win it and to a lot of the teams and a lot of the people inside of Gasoline Alley. But when you get outside of Gasoline Alley and out into the grandstands, into the city and into the greater escape of the motorsports world. I just don't know that it carries as much prestige or if it ever will again. Aaron, if you can, can you identify a tipping point where, as a Hoosier, where do you think NASCAR lost some of Indianapolis and Indiana? I feel like it's a, it's a combination of about three things. First of all, I mean, when it first came, just the novelty of seeing stock cars there was so great. It didn't matter what kind of product you had or anything else. NASCAR was growing at the time, and that event, the track and them going there was so special to everybody, and seeing stock cars there was so unique that there was almost no wrong they could do, you know? Like if they had, as long as they didn't have any serious issues, that race was always going to have that prestige. And that, that helped it so much early on through the first probably 10 years. But then... Over time, the novelty started to wear off. We saw some racetracks sprout up on the cup schedule within the same driving range. You think of Chicagoland Speedway, Kentucky Speedway. I mean, when I was first growing up in the 90s, if we wanted to go to a race in Indiana, you either took off for one of the two Michigan races or you went to the Brickyard. That was all you had. 
So having a couple more races also probably added to it. But then also, you know, you get into the 2000s. One, the novelty is already wearing off a little bit, and we're starting to be a little more critical of it. Two, I mean, we you can't dodge it. They had the whole tire debacle, and that's the most angry I've seen fans in the grandstands as somebody who attended that race as a fan. And that definitely pushed a lot of people off of it. Like, I, I remember even going to school a couple weeks later to start. I think I was my freshman year of high school, either freshman or sophomore year. Sorry if that makes you guys feel old. And I just remember, like, even kids, kids, kids coming up to me at school, which never happened, to talk to me about that race because they were upset about it. And that was a week or two later from what I recall. So I think that was part of it. And when that pushed people off – it was kind of coming, one, in the midst of that recession of that time, and two, as the Indianapolis 500 was kind of slowly starting to build back up its prestige, and, you know, we were kind of building toward the 100th by then. So I think the Indy 500 started kind of growing back, and then the fans could only really afford with the recession to go to one of the two races. I know that happened to a lot of my friends. And at that point, with Indy growing in prestige, they were starting to put on a better product. You think of like the 2011 finish, the craziness of Dan Weldon and J.R. Fitzpatrick. A lot of my people I knew at least started switching over and they started going to the Indy 500, which has obviously continued to kind of become the marquee event it once was and is now a massive thing. And between those three things, I don't know what all NASCAR could have done to avoid it. I mean, maybe if this package we work now works and it would work back then, maybe that could have helped save it. The tire debacle added to it, but I don't know that that was all of it. I just, I really think over time the novelty of it wore on. And as people had less funding to go to other races and they had to slim down, a lot of the locals have kind of chosen the Indy 500 over it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great analysis. Think, especially the, the Indy tie-in with the recession. And, and you're right, you're spot on with the Weldon, Danica Patrick kind of era, kind of, you know, coming up at the same point. That, that was really good, Aaron. So something I had not thought of. Um, because, you know, and for me, look, it, it's, it's personal for everyone, right? I mean, you, Indy has never waned for me. I mean, it saddens me to see that the, the stands have, you know, not been as packed, obviously, as they once were, but I, I've always watched it with as much excitement and reverence. One thing I never liked, guys, I, I hated, and I still don't really like that the Xfinity or Nationwide series races there. I, I thought that is such hallowed ground that there should only be two races a year for, add Formula One, maybe, but, that that's all I thought should ever be at that racetrack. And then they added, they started adding races and I, I thought it kind of cheapened the history of the place. I just didn't like that. I'm with you on that. I actually appreciated the Xfinity series at, uh, at Lucas oil raceway, but I'm one of the biggest Lucas oil raceway stands ever. So I'm, I'm, I'm pro any race at that racetrack, but um, I, I totally understand it. What Aaron said is fascinating and that, that's probably hitting the nail on the head. Let's talk about the racing a little bit at the track because that's obviously what can bring people or turn people off. Uh, we remember we have a new package this year, something that could lend itself to different racing at the Brickyard. I talked to Daniel Suarez this week and indicated, uh, you know, we will see a different product on the track, potentially, you know, some sort of drafting product, possibly something that looks not like what we've seen before. Uh, and we've seen changes at different, at other racetracks this year. So, but in terms of the racing we do know about, you know, sometimes we know it gets strung out. We know fuel can matter. We know, unfortunately, tires can really matter in some cases, but in, in, is there more than meets the eye, David, than what we've seen at the Brickyard, maybe the last 10 years or maybe over the, the entire 25 years? Because, uh, it seems like it can get strung out and the, the best car is out there and the rabbit that everyone has to catch. Um, 
is there more to the racing than meets the eye? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think we're going to see anything like, uh, what was it? Dale Jarrett in 1998 making up four laps down under green and, uh, having one of the weirdest races ever. We're not going to see a car that strong dominate this kind of race. But I think since the 08 tire debacle, uh, Goodyear has hesitated to bring a tire that has any kind of fall off on this track. But the good that can come of that is that I'm not even going to use the term chess match. This has been track position blackjack in the high rollers room. Okay. So I think back to 2012 and 2013 when the races were viewed as dull. But if you knew what you were watching, they really weren't. I mean, there were high stakes being played positioned within those races were dueling strategies where half of the field had one pit window and the other half had a different one. Uh, and early in the race, you'd realize, wow, a lot of heavy hitters are going to be very wrong at the end of this race. And that fascinated me. I don't know that it was articulated well enough on the telecast. So fans at home might not have picked up on what was happening. But to me, the Brickyard 400 is a race that forces crew chiefs into taking big swings that they might not want to take. Um, we remember Casey Kane's dramatic restarts at the end of the 2017 race uh, that led to his win, but most people forget that his crew chief that day, Keith Rodden, jumped him 11 spots in the running order from 14th to 3rd on the final green flag pit cycle to put him in the position uh, to to get to first place. And last year, on behalf of Brad Keselowski, Paul Wolf didn't pit the two car on the final green flag pit cycle. And that ended up um, being the winning call. It was a long pit strategy where Paul Wolf won big when the caution came out. But it moved Keselowski from 14th to 1st. And from where I sit, I believe the last two Brickyard 400s were won via intelligence on the pit box. Uh, Alan, we talked about the... 2020 schedule with Daytona and Indianapolis essentially swapping places. And while it isn't that big of a deal, both races pay the same in regards to points. It does mean that going forward, race 26 goes from being a race heavily and almost uncomfortably dictated by crew chiefs to one where crew chiefs have no control over the proceedings and that is a real element of drama and stress for the crew chiefs that is soon going to be completely off the table during the regular season finale. And I'm coming to grips with it now. I'm going to miss that. I, I actually enjoy what Indianapolis forces us to monitor, and that is crew chiefs with their backs against the wall trying to figure out how do they beat this place. Yeah, we'll think about that next year, David. We got a whole year to think about that. But no, really, I mean, if you're a traditionalist in terms of a race fan or a, ra a fan of racing, a traditional fan of racing, I mean, the point is to get to the finish line first, right? The best, smartest way possible. I mean, that is what traditional fans will tell you. And they, they will be in awe of a car that can get a four or five second lead, right? They, they, they can appreciate the mechanics of it. They can appreciate all the work that goes in to a pit strategy, giving you more track position and just going out there and being the fastest and first to the finish line. That's what this race tends to lend itself to, at least through my eyes. That doesn't always 
make the most compelling television, which for some NASCAR fans can be, uh, can anger some. You know, we want, we like the beating and banging. We like cars right next to each other going through the corner too wide. So I can see why some, why the traditional fans, Aaron, will, will like it. And I can see why some NASCAR fans don't like the racing at the brickyard. Uh, what's your view on it? <laughs> Well, you know, football season's coming back, and to me, I can find a perfect analogy for this. It's like a defensive football game. So, you know, I come from a family, my dad's from Alabama, I grew up watching the SEC, and it was a conference, especially in the last decade, known for punishing defenses. You know, you grind out a 24-7 to win, or you'd hold on for a field goal and win 15-12. to It was always low scoring and hard hitting, and Every every major play felt like it mattered that much more because of it, and a lot of people didn't like that. You know, a lot of people would rather watch Oregon put up 50 points a game, and sometimes even I preferred that. But I think the Brickyard and many, the many, to a degree, the Brickyard is kind of similar to that. Um, you know, you have teams that'll be playing it kind of safe, trying not to make many mistakes. You think of like maybe somebody who like a Clint Boyer if he's in position late in the race, but you'll have other teams that might, you know, throw caution to the wind, have like a Paul Menard trying to make a last-ditch effort to get in with a win like he managed to win in 2011. Or, you know, you think of a team like two years ago, Trevor Bain. Casey Kane's win was the big moment from that. People forget if it weren't for some late cautions, Trevor Bain might have been the winner of the 27 Brickyard 400, and who knows how his career would have gone from there. So it's it's a difficult race for people who like a lot of passing and action a lot of times, and that might change a little bit this year with this package. I don't know if it matches the Xfinity series, you know, they've kind of doubled their lead changes and it's gotten a little more exciting. So potentially it could be a little more engaging from that perspective this year, but if it plays out like the standard and this might be the last time we get to see it like this, it's going to be a lot of playoff desperate teams looking for any way possible that they can get their driver track position because that's, what's going to prove paramount to success at the end. Great discussion about the history of this place, but as always, we like to help out uh, maybe your fantasy lineup or just your knowledge in general and preview the upcoming race. So let's do it, David. This weekend at the Brickyard, in terms of strategy, we know there's always going to be the unknown. We've had it every race of the new rule package, but in terms of strategy and how a race like this plays out on Sunday, what are you looking at? I mean, the betting odds for this one should line up with the current overall central speed rankings, which you can find posted on The Athletic this week. But it's going to be the pit strategy that is just part and parcel to this race because it is race 26 and the majority of the playoff participants are locked in. I think we will see some risk takers and the long pitting tactic is wide open this weekend. And to me, that's that's a staring contest. Who blinks first as each cycle draws to a close? We talked about what Keith Rodden did to propel Casey Kane to victory two years ago. It was a weird strategic decision, but after Kyle Busch and Martin Truex wrecked each other out in that race, it became a weird race that lent itself to those who deployed a weird strategy. So I'm going to keep an eye on teams keeping things weird because that it is a risk, but it is a discernible game plan. And it makes sense within the context of this race this weekend and what it means for the playoffs. That is a Hail Mary. But if you do not take that shot downfield, to use Aaron's football analogy, you will not put your car in a position to win the race 
if the race breaks in an odd manner. And it could come down to, we've seen it sometimes, at least we have the stage breaks, but the restarts, uh, restarts, we talk about it every week, um, being such a variable in these races and the different lanes, the preferred lanes. It was really interesting to see. Remember last week in Darlington, how, how we said it could evolve during the race. It could change, especially with the new rules package. And it did. Uh, I had, a, I took a lot of pleasure in watching that evolve throughout the race. So David Brickyard, new package. What, what historically do we know about restarts and what are you thinking about the potential for Sunday? Yeah, I mean, this is a track where restarts have evolved even recently. In 2017, the restart grooves were close to even. And in 2018, the inside line pulled ahead, retaining 74% of the time to the outside's 44% rate. We talked a few weeks ago about the change in the restart dynamic thanks to the reduction in horsepower. And I think this race will look a little like Pocono in Michigan on restarts. We circled uh, desperation as a potential reason why restarts are so frantic. Drivers may not feel that there are a lot of straightforward passing opportunities. So these two-lap windows following each restart, where all the cars are bunched together, are going to be a huge deal this weekend because that's going to be something that the drivers feel that they can control, especially since the strategic designs that we've talked about could be up in the air. Because, I mean, unless we forget, we we can't just assume that every driver and crew chief are on the same page. So uh, what can a driver do to help his cause? That's fine positions on restarts. And this is such a unique track, Aaron, that it makes it hard to to compare. You know, you, you've watched all year. We, we've seen the Michigans and the Poconos. I don't know how much you can take away from that in terms of comparing uh, or, or trying to prognosticate what may happen on Sunday. But what, what what's on your mind before they drop the green flag on Sunday? <laughs> well, I remember watching this race all the time, and you'd see you know, Dale Jarrett would win Pocono. It'd be like, oh, Dale Jarrett's the guy to beat at the Brickyard. But with the way things are now with the package and the wild strategies we're bound to see, I think you guys are right in that there's a little bit of unpredictability to this race. But the thing I'm most curious about when it comes to this one now is that the field ends up more packed up here, and this is an issue that you're not going to see too many other tracks. The Brickyard is such a tight racetrack that I feel like there might be some level of attrition involved as well. Because if you get team, if you have guys, especially on these restarts, going three and four wide and that lasting for multiple laps here, all it takes is one car getting loose, and there's really only two, sometimes one lane, to try to get around most of them. So I definitely feel like there's going to be a little bit more attrition, perhaps, if we start getting wrecks here because of the way they're going to be stacked up, potentially, with this package. And that's one of those things, if you're ever lucky enough to be at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, that's one of the first things you will notice. And if you're ever lucky enough to get actually on the track and just feel how close and tight that front stretch is, it's something really memorable. So great point there, Aaron. Uh, something we like to do every week. I'm not going to pat myself on the back, although I'm about to. We talk, we pick sleeper picks, David, uh, and we try, you know, potentially who could someone maybe out of the ordinary, who could go out there and win. Last week I picked Eric Jones. He went out there and won the Southern 500. So we're going to do it again this week. We're going to pick a potential sleeper for the Brickyard 400. And David, for me personally, I mean, this was tough because as we said earlier, this race tends uh, to lend itself to big names, to drivers, you know, who aren't sleeper picks, who you wouldn't be surprised at all if they won the Brickyard 400. But if you had to pick one, David, who are you looking at on Sunday? I'm going to cheat and pick two. I'm picking the duo from Richard Childress Racing, uh, Austin Dillon and Daniel Hemrick. Okay, so we talked about 
having to swing for the fences. And this is not only the organization that swings for fences in regards to pit strategy, but they have actually gone against the grain this year. They've sort of prioritized the two-mile track type. Austin Dillon ranks 19th in central speed overall, but ranks 13th in speed on this track type. Meanwhile, Hemrick ranks 24th overall and 15th on the two-mile tracks. As an organization, RCR proved they're prone to approaching green flag pit cycles in an all-or-nothing manner, but this year, this race, they also have enough speed to be dangerous. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Interesting stuff. Aaron, you're up next. I don't know if you're going to go as crazy as David just did, but I like what he said. So who who are you looking at for a potential sleeper? I can be a little crazy. Uh, you could really say four from this because I think any of the drivers right now by the bubble could win statistically if you just look at their stats at the Brickyard. But instead of picking the easy one with Jimmy Johnson, I'm actually going to pick the guy that beat him in 2013 and say Ryan Newman. Uh, this is a track that can predictably – or traditionally, this is a track that can kind of favor guys that are difficult to pass. <laughs> I think Newman's kind of got that down. The Roush Fenway team has shown in the past they can play strategy to get a driver up there. Like I just said, Trevor Bain was a few laps and an un- unfortunate caution away from winning this race two years ago. Newman already has a win here in 2013, and he just finished third here a couple years ago. So I, I think it's going to depend on how the race plays out. If Roush doesn't get a lot of stage points and some of the drivers around them on the bubble do and they feel the need to try to gamble late in the race to try to win it, I definitely think Ryan Newman is a guy that, if positioned up front, could try to hold on to it. All right. I'm apparently being the lame one and picking – well, I'm going with Kyle Larson, and he's not that far out, so I apologize. (laughs) I'm just picking Kyle Larson, purely stat-based, because he hasn't won yet this year other than the All-Star race. And, uh, you know, he's got the fifth fastest car of the year, according to David's Central Speed Rankings, but he's got the second fastest car over the last five races. So, like I did with Eric Jones last last week, I just like this little momentum climb of speed, especially recently. Kyle Larson has good passing numbers, which on a good long, you know, green flags, uh, run that we see at Indy sometimes, maybe that'll benefit him. And he's also a good and sometimes great restarter. So even if it breaks weird, I think Kyle Larson can be there. And again, if we're taking out the top favorites, the, the champions of the world who have won this before and you wouldn't be surprised to win this race, I think Kyle Larson may be able to steal one on Sunday. What do you think, David? Kyle Larson not only has the second fastest car over the last five races, he has the second fastest car dating back to late June. So look, it's been a winless summer for him, but that team has been sneaky good. They just don't have the finishes. And some of that stems from the driver uh, hurting himself in practice and having to start from the rear and putting themselves in deficits before the race even starts. But that doesn't properly uh, give us a good status of where the program is. And the 42 car is really good. Aaron mentioned earlier that Roger Penske puts a pretty big emphasis on Indianapolis. I think Chip Ganassi might as well. Good stuff. All right. So we have team RCR, Ryan Newman, and Kyle Larson. Hopefully one of our sleepers takes it and we sound real smart. We'll see. We'll see on Sunday. And uh, we always close with what do we want to see? What is something if you had the perfect Sunday, what do you want to see? Aaron, I'll start with you. You're the local. You're the Indiana native, the Hoosier, the attender of many brickyards, the local historian. What do you want to see on Sunday from your Brickyard 400? 
Well, first, some fans in the stands because I love it when there's people there to enjoy it. But number two, the thing I'd really like to see with this being the last year with this is the regular season finale. I just want to see some drama, guys. I want to see those bubble guys battling it out for potential playoff spots in the closing laps. And if possible, I'd also like to see somebody outside of the bubble right now with an outside shot to win it with the laps winding down. I will, I'm going the similar way. I'd love to see Jimmy Johnson win. I'll just go out there and say it. I don't know how you look at any of the stats, the speed stuff, especially at this track type this year. I don't know if there's anything out there that, that points to why he may win other than wild pit strategy and the right circumstances breaking his way. I know he was fast at Darlington, but just looking, I'm trying to be stat based, think with the head and not the heart. I don't know how it would happen, but I would still like to happen. Uh, maybe it's a whole new brickyard with this arrow package. We'll see. It would be quite the story. And uh, ultimately, you know, I'm a storyteller, and I would love to tell that story one day. So I'd love to see Jimmy Johnson win. David, you're up. Well, the uh, the pragmatist in me wants to see some Hail Marys. Uh, I do want to see a team uh, go out and grab the race by the scruff of the neck and make it happen, not just no, no, no conservative strategies this Sunday. But I think more... Importantly, the, um, the idealist in me wants to see a race that the fans in Indianapolis and, uh, in Indiana, those maybe that just casually watch NASCAR and have to choose between the Indy 500 and the Brickyard 400, watch a good race on television and are, uh, have their interest peaked and may want to return because I think NASCAR is a good product. I think lost over the few years. Yeah, there, there have been some, some snoozers, but for the most part, we, we produce a good product every weekend. I would like for that to be a showcase for the fans of Indianapolis. I would like for this track and this race to have a special meaning again within NASCAR because it did once. It was a big deal and I'd like it to be a big deal once more. So. Whatever it takes to get back to that point, um, I'm all for that. I would like to see it. Amen to that. And look, we're all kind of, I'll admit to being a NASCAR homer. Obviously, we want to see good things happen. But it does feel like this year there's been some good momentum. You know, we, we've just had good crowds and good racing. And, you know, the, the, the racing has reflected the crowd there. And things have been pointing it, trending in a positive direction. So why can't it happen for the Brickyard this week? I think that was very well said, David. And Aaron, Aaron Bearden, thank you for joining us here on episode 33 of Positive Regression. Um, you've got Motorsports Beat. Tell us about that and where can we find you? How can we find your work and benefit from it for those who already are not doing that? All right. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to you guys for having me on. I'm a noted Posrex fan. It was really exciting for me when David gave me this opportunity. So I appreciate you guys giving me the platform to come on and talk NASCAR. Uh, when it comes to following me, I'm the owner and right now only writer for Motorsports Beat. It's an outlet dedicated to trying to find unique stories and things to tell within the motorsports industry. I'm hoping to build it. I'm going to be at the rest of the NASCAR races from here through the playoffs if things work out. I was just at the NHRA U.S. Nationals. So we mixed up a little bit, but I'm out and about. You can follow me at AaronBearden93. I apologize in advance for the puns. You can follow the outlet at Motorsports Beat. Uh, the website is motorsportsbeat.com, and while you're there, be sure to check out both, A, the morning warm-up newsletter, which I send out every day at 6 a.m. and gives you all the racing news and notes you need to know for all of motorsport that I can track, 
And also, if you want to support me, if you like what we're doing, I have a Patreon. Thanks, patreon.com slash motorsportsbeat. Never, never feel obligated to do it, but those patrons are what's pushing me through this playoff push. So I couldn't do it without them. So thank you to all of them. And if anybody wants to hop on board, thank you so much. Aaron, again, thank you so much for joining us. And for those listening, if you aren't signed up for his morning newsletter, it is free and it helps your life. How many things can you say that that are free and they help your life every morning with ease? Just sign up for it. It's really helpful and you'll enjoy it every morning. It makes your day. It's good. It's good. (laughs) And as for this podcast, just remember, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are there and we are available. If you like what you are hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff really does help us. It helps us gain some visibility. Don't be afraid to tell your friends. You know, I I promise we're we're trying to teach you stuff. If you learn, tell your friends, brag to them. Get them to listen to your help in spreading the word is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we want to answer them on this podcast. We've done it before. We will continue to do it. We love your feedback. So reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, what are you working on? The staff of The Athletic, which is Jeff Gluck, Jordan Bianchi, and myself, are uh, all going to participate in a roundtable discussion uh, on theathletic.com this week leading into the Indianapolis race weekend. I'll have some stories on Kyle Busch and Jimmy Johnson as well, so be sure to check that out. Good stuff there. I had a fun week on The Hub. Make sure you go back on my Twitter account, at Alan Kavana. I talk with Daniel Hemrick, apparently a Brickyard uh, favorite of David's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, uh, go back, and I'll make sure I bring that up to Daniel this week on Race Hub and see what he says. Uh, but I talked to Daniel Hemrick. I talked to Daniel Suarez, another driver on the bubble going into this weekend. That'll be on Thursday's edition of Race Hub. So if you're listening and our subscriber, you're hearing this on Thursday morning. That is much, much appreciated. And uh, a cool professional uh, high point, uh, Jeff Gordon won this race, the Brickyard 400, 25 years ago. And I got to work on a pretty cool uh, look-back essay that Jeff Gordon voiced and kind of remembrance of that win. And as much as it hurt me to write you know, with him and for him, uh, it was an honor to do it. So I can't wait to see how it turns out, David. Uh, I am curious about that as well, but, uh, you all, you do a, you do a great job with those pieces and I'd love to see that one. Yeah. I just wish I was writing about Rusty. That's really what I'm getting at. So <laughs> it happens, but for, for Aaron Bearden, for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you so much for joining positive regression and listening every week. Have an enjoyable Rickyard weekend and we'll be back here next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.